listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Sound good this morning? You look good this morning? Some of you look better than others, but uh, you look good this morning. Always love worshiping with you. Uh, Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. While you're finding your place there, let me uh, announce... Uh, that we are not doing a summer slump at First Baptist Van Austin. okay? You heard it right here this morning. Um, church growth gurus always talk about the summer slump that churches experience, and I understand that uh, we're entering vacation season and all that. There are a couple of weeks, in fact, that I'll be gone. I'm planning to go see some family out in Boise, Idaho, and uh, get away for a little bit. I'll be on a missions trip uh, later this summer in Wyoming with some of you, um, looking forward to that, and so I will not be preaching every week, and will not be here every week through the summer, uh, but when I am in town, unless I'm providentially hindered, I'm planning to be here. You say, well, that's easy for you to say, you're the preacher, okay? But the same thing can be true for you. Uh, I know one thing, when I was growing up, one, one discussion we never had in my house growing up uh, was this discussion of, do y'all want to go to church tomorrow? I don't remember my dad ever asking us that question. It was assumed that we were going. And we often say it this way, a Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. And uh, while we all do need to get away and all of those things, uh, I just stop and think, you know, we're talking about really a couple of hours on Sunday morning, typically. A um, couple of hours in light of everything that the Lord has done for us. And it's not as if uh, we can cause God to love us more by being here or anything like that. I think it should just be a priority for us. So I just want to encourage you in that, and I do want you to get away. I do want you to spend time um, refreshing and all those things. It's important. Uh, But when you are in town and you're able physically to be here, uh, I hope to see you. And uh, with I used to always say it this way, with a Bible in your hand and a smile on your face, all right? And so with that, let's uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today. Now, last week we covered chapter 8 in our current series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and if you were with us, you will recall Paul was really responding to a problem presented to him in uh, a letter from the Corinthians. Uh, the problem was food offered to idols. And while we acknowledge that that is not a specific issue that most of us deal with uh, today, uh, as he worked through that specific problem, he articulated what is really a timeless principle and certainly has strong application for us. Uh, and that is this, that love constrains liberty. Love constrains liberty. Though we may know the truth, and knowing the truth uh, is not the only criteria for judging correct Christian behavior. So there are times when loving others in Jesus Christ will limit the liberty that we know we have in Jesus for their good and for the glory of God. We will relinquish our freedoms, give up our rights for the good uh, of others. Uh, that, was, that was in chapter 8. And that's a principle that we see throughout Scripture. Uh, how many times do you see this principle taught in both the Old and New Testaments? That we're to think of others more than we think of ourselves. Jesus himself, as Scripture tells us, when he came, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So if anyone could have come to this earth and said, I I demand to be served, it was Jesus. But that was not the posture, that was not the position that he took. Uh, Even in his final hours on earth, what did he do? He washed his disciples' feet. 
Uh, and so we see this, this attitude, this, this mindset, uh, this, uh, this principle of putting others uh, over and above uh, yourself. Uh, and so as we look at the first half of chapter 9 today, you may get the impression that Paul has entirely moved on from this subject of meat offered to idols. And in one sense, he has. Uh, he was dealing with this, this specific issue. But he, in, in fact, he actually comes back to that subject uh, in chapter 10. But here in chapter 9, he pauses to defend his ministry as an apostle. And as you listen to him, you will see him doing so in such a way that he models the same principle that he was just teaching back in chapter 8. So he models how love, love for the Corinthians, particularly in this case, has constrained Paul's liberty. Uh, and he has given up certain rights that he knows he is free to exercise for their good, for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. And so fundamentally, we see here in chapter 9, Paul is practicing what he preaches. If there was anything that scared the bejeebies out of me when I was first called to preach, it was the thought that I would be expected to practice what I preach. It's difficult enough to prepare a sermon Difficult enough to preach a sermon, but it's an entirely a different thing to live what you preach, to practice what you preach. Don't ever get the impression that when I preach a subject that I've got it whipped, okay? that I've got it all figured out, and I'm perfectly living that out in my life. And so it's not uncommon for one of you to say to me, Pastor, you're kind of stepping on my toes this morning and everything. Well, trust me, that's been happening with me all week in the study. Okay, God's working me over with the text as well. And so I understand the, the, the weight of living out what I preach. Uh, that is not an easy thing to do. So let's look together at the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today. Paul begins by asking a series of questions in his own defense. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? What he's saying there is, do we not have the right to receive financial support from the work of ministry? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, or do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, as do they? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. This next phrase is critically important to the subject that's before us today. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? 
In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, this is a a pretty sensitive area, sensitive subject. Fundamentally, Paul is talking about money and ministry. Uh, Trust me, as a pastor, uh, I've heard all the jokes. Uh, There are some who remind me regularly that uh, in their mind, I work one or two days a week. I've heard all those jokes. Um, I, I've had kids, actually, when I, several years ago, I used to do a children's sermon every Sunday morning, invite the kids down to the front there. And uh, one day I made the mistake of recognizing one of the kids' questions. Never did it again after that because the question was, What is your real job? What is your real job? I mean, it just, it's mind boggling to some people to think that a person would actually make a living doing ministry. Uh, and and the, the thing I love about ministry as much as anything is that no two days are ever the same. Now, I do a lot of the same things, but when it's all said and done, no two days are ever the same. No two weeks are ever the same. I, I did a wide variety of things this past week. I sat in administrative meetings. Uh, I played whirly ball with a group of fifth graders and pretty much dominated them. And so... Um, uh, but I'm not proud of that or anything. But anyway, I, and, and then I preached a funeral. And so th- there's just kind of this wide variety of things that, that we do in ministry as we, as we carry out God's calling on our lives. Now, I will say this. There are a group of individuals who really, in many ways, are my heroes. You may not realize of the 63 churches that make up the Grayson Baptist Association, about half of those, maybe more, are pastored by bivocational pastors. In some cases, they pastor in a very part-time way. Um, they, they, they have another job. Uh, and so I can't imagine carrying out a lot of the duties that, that fall to us as pastors, as church leaders, all the while trying to maintain a full-time job at the same time. Uh, it, it's just it's incredible. Here's what a lot of people don't realize. The average church in America is about 75 people. That's the average so most of those churches obviously are much smaller, and there are some, uh, which by the way, we need to pray for because it's, it's uncertain right now whether they're going to survive COVID. You think about a church that has 35 or 40 people, and if during COVID they lost one or two families even, that could be financially devastating to them. And so it is not lost on me that there are a lot of individuals out there faithfully pastoring, faithfully serving, faithfully preaching, who get very little financial support for doing so. So it's critically important that we understand the sensitivity of this subject. At the same time, we all know of gross abuses in this area. We all think of prosperity preachers, okay? And and you hear of their extravagant lifestyles and multiple homes and multiple places and the vehicles that they drive and, and all of those sorts of things. And so this is, a, this is a very important subject. It's a very sensitive subject. I, I can remember back a number of years ago, we were uh, fairly young in ministry. I was an associate pastor at the time. We had just moved back to Texas. And uh, when we came back, we had this older car that was in failing health. And uh, it we just reached a point where we needed a new vehicle. And so we saved our money and we bought a used Ford Escort. Okay, we thought it was the coolest thing ever because it had those automatic seat belts. Remember that when you would get in and the seat belts would go, you know? We just thought that we had arrived. We'd only had that car for a couple of weeks, and I was parking one day to go into the church, still had the, the temporary tags on it, and this person walked by and said, Well, I can see we're paying you too much. I thought, it's a Ford Escort, bro. Like, and it's used. Okay. I'm just like, 
And, and so uh, I, I'm grateful uh, for the ways in which God has provided for us through the years. And I would say to you as my church family, I'm so grateful uh, for your loving support. And those of you who give faithfully to the budget of First Baptist Church, Van Alstein, it allows me to eat. And uh, I, I'm grateful for that. And we're well cared for. Uh, there have been other seasons in our ministry where, quite honestly, we didn't necessarily know how we were going to make, make our bills you know, by the end of the month. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, I know these, these wild extremes and everything. And so I want us to just kind of keep that in mind. And there's a lot being said today about entitlement. And while we might like to identify it as a problem just in certain age demographics, you know, it's commonly said, well, you know, the young people this day, they're all just so entitled. You know, the millennials, they're all so entitled. It's actually a problem for all of us if we're completely honest. Because let's face it, I don't know about you, but I tend to have 20-20 vision when it comes to my rights. And I expect you to acknowledge my rights and to, to respect my rights. But I'm a little fuzzy many times when it comes to my responsibilities, if the truth be told. And I don't know if you can relate to that or not. But rights we know, responsibilities, nah, not so much. It's a, it's a culture in many ways of entitlement. And especially here in America, where we have so much. We have so much I mean, you, just, you, you ever just stop in the, in the aisle at Walmart and just look at the entire aisle of chips? Just chips of different kinds. And then you go to the next aisle, and it's an entire aisle of just all kinds of cereals. Just cereal. A few years ago, when I led a missions team over to West Africa, one of the things that the missionary kids there talked about is when they came back to the States uh, after a, a time of service over uh, in that part of the world, they would come back and they would be gripped by a decision paralysis. Because while living over there, they didn't have all those choices. And so there are a lot of things that we take for granted that we, that, that we just assume, and then we become entitled in many ways. We feel like this is what is owed to us. Uh, and, and so I want you to notice here in the passage this morning, some of the Corinthian Christians, at least, seem to have a, a similar entitlement mindset. They are raising objections. They are questioning Paul's authority as an apostle. They're, they're doubting his word. They're dismissing his ministry in some respects. And I want you to notice the first thing that Paul does is he gives a defense. Paul's defense, and we see that in verses 1 through 3 again as he asks these questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. And the words that he uses there in verse number 3, defense, examine, those were commonly used in a court of law. And so Paul is defending himself against what he considers, on some levels, to be a hostile and a biased, prejudiced prosecution. This is his defense. And he offers a number of points in his defense that we're going to consider here in just a moment. But first, we need to pause, I think, and we need to ask ourselves, what is it that has these Corinthians so frustrated with Paul in the first place? Why are they questioning his role as an apostle? If you read on in the rest of the chapter, it becomes clear what has made them so upset. Paul had refused to take their money. You would think, at a first glance, like, what could be the problem with that? 
Well, you see, in ancient cities like Corinth, traveling philosophers and public speakers, the the sophists, we talked about them early on in our study of 1 Corinthians here, they would often depend on the support of wealthy patrons. So they would basically be sponsored by them. Not unlike today when you watch a, a professional sporting event. I know in the NBA now they have uh, sponsors. You know, you'll look on their jerseys and they have a, a company logo or name here. And so they're, they're kind of they're sponsored by those companies. And so what would happen is these sophists, these philosophers, these speakers, they would lodge many times in these people's homes. They would receive financial payment from them. They would, they would uh, literally support them financially. And of course in those days, much as in our day, Very often, money comes with strings attached. And so what these these wealthy, influential people would do many times is they would financially support a, a, a gifted speaker so that that person could say what they wanted them to say. I'll give you the message, you just be the messenger kind of thing. There were strings attached. And so many times they would have a a personal, private agenda, but because of their support... These orators, these speakers, would be obligated to deliver, essentially, their message. And similar things happen in churches all the time. Sometimes we preachers will jokingly say, all we need at our church is a couple of millionaires. You know, we feel like, man, all of our problems would be solved. But the truth is, that's not always the case. I've got pastor friends who could tell you horror stories of what it's like to have very wealthy people in their church who control the church with their money. One friend in particular, pastors up in the Northeast, and, and when they went there, there was this, in the church, there was this guy who owned several car dealerships and had, had lots of money, far more than most of us will ever see in a lifetime, and yet that person so controlled the church. The truth is that there are a lot of churches like that, controlled by one or two individuals, and everybody kind of tiptoes around those people because they feel like, well, if they get offended, or if we don't do something they want us to do, or if we try to do something they don't want us to do, then they'll leave and they'll take their money with them. There's nothing godly about that. God does not intend for us to use our money in a way that manipulates people. That manipulates the work of God. I've heard of churches that, well, we disagree with the preacher or whatever, so we're going to starve him out. People will quit giving. They'll make sure that all their giving is done in a way that it's designated, so it goes to their personal pet projects and things of that nature. And so uh, Paul is really fundamentally addressing some of these types of, uh, uh, of ideas, that kind of thinking. Now, according to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4 there, we learn that Paul was a tent maker by trade. That's what he did. He made tents. That was his skill. And he used it to be free from financial dependence on the churches among whom he ministered. And it bothered some of the Corinthian believers. There were no strings for them to pull. He couldn't be bought, in other words. There was no way to control Paul or his ministry. And so they adopt a tactic that's not all that uncommon when the entitled do not get their way, get what they believe they are due. They resort to denunciation. Or they cast aspersions. And that's kind of what was happening here. They undermine Paul and they seek to damage his credibility as an apostle. And so he fundamentally gives two defenses in this regard. He first mentions that he was an eyewitness of the resurrection. If you look at verses 1 through 3 again, he offers these two arguments. He first says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? This was part of the necessary qualifications for apostleship. 
And so you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. One of the reasons that we do not hold to what's called apostolic succession, there are no more apostles functioning in that regard today, is because there are no more eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And so Acts chapter 9, however, the apostle Paul, uh, and this is is what he's reminding the Corinthians of, saw the, the Lord risen from the dead, received his commission directly as an apostle from the mouth of the risen and exalted Jesus there on the road to Damascus. He is saying in his defense, I have the qualifications of apostleship. And then he also uses the existence of the Corinthian church itself. He's saying, those of you who are criticizing me, those of you who are calling into question my apostolic authority, I'm going to use you yourself. Look in the mirror for a minute. And so he points to these Corinthians themselves. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. They themselves give evidence of the authenticity of his ministry. We've all heard the expression, and maybe you've used it, the proof is in the pudding. You ever say that? That's actually not how the saying goes. <laughs> the saying goes, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And so how do you know the pudding is any good? You eat it, and you prove that the recipe was a good recipe. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. So how do you know the Apostle Paul is the real deal? That he's really an apostle. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Change lives. He says, you guys have heard me proclaim the gospel. You are the evidence of this supernatural reality. You are the seal of my apostleship. That's a common saying in pastor circles that God is not as interested in our fruitfulness as much as he's interested in our faithfulness. Fruitfulness is God's business. We're called to be faithful to the calling that he has given us. And that's a true statement. Our responsibility is faithfulness. God will take care of the fruitfulness. But I think Paul is reminding us here that ordinarily Christian faithfulness is connected to Christian fruitfulness. Scripture talks very clearly about us abiding in Christ, being united with him in such a way that through our lives, through our faithfulness to him, fruit is born. You see the fruit of that. And so we would often say, you hear it said today a lot, We should not to judge others. Some would say, well, but we are told in Scripture to be fruit inspectors. And so where there is no fruit, there typically is no root. And so Paul is saying here, the fruit of my ministry is borne out even in you. The fact that the church at Corinth was planted is evidence of my ministry. My faithfulness in the service of the Lord is demonstrated by fruit, not only in my life, as I'm, I'm walking in Christ's likeness, but in your lives as well. In fact, in chapter 11, he begins by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he gives this defense. Then I want you to notice, number two, Paul's duty. He's been personally unwilling to receive money from the Corinthians to their chagrin and to their frustration a bit. That doesn't mean, however, that it is wrong to pay your pastor for which I am very grateful. Uh, He wants them to know uh, that that, that a large part of the argument of the rest of chapter 9 here is reminding the Corinthians that they have a a duty, an obligation to support gospel work in their midst financially. 
Notice quickly how he argues. Verse number four, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Here it is from the mouth of the apostle himself. Is it only I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? The other leaders of the early church, he is saying, the apostles, Jesus' brothers, even Cephas, the apostle Peter, they are freed up from secular employment so that they can eat and drink and live and even bring along their wives on ministry outings, ministry trips, because the church is supporting them adequately. So why not Paul? That's his question. And then he offers a string of arguments to back up and reinforce the point that supporting and maintaining the work and the ministry of the gospel is the duty of the local church. So look at verse number 7. A soldier works for wages. A farmer enjoys the fruit of his labors. That's just natural justice. A servant is worthy of his hire, we would say. Some commentators suggest that Paul selected specifically these uh, professions because some of the Corinthians themselves were soldiers or farmers or, or, or vine dressers. And so if that's the case, it would certainly reinforce, make the argument stronger. They all benefit from their labors. So why should Paul, who labored among them, be any different? So there's kind of a natural justice argument here. But there's also a, a scriptural argument. You see that in verse number 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, and then he references this text from Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Oxen were allowed to to munch on the grain, some of the produce, while they trudged round and round to separate the grain from the chaff. Now, is it for oxen that God is most concerned? Is the, is the kind of the rhetorical question? Does he not uh, certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And so God, who is concerned about oxen, is much more concerned for his ministers. Like oxen who serve their masters, ministers serve King Jesus. And the church, Paul says, is to ensure they are provided for. So you have this natural justice argument, you have a scriptural argument, and there's even a logic and common sense argument. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So he's using logic to argue from the lesser to the greater. If we sow spiritual things in your lives which have infinite value, surely the material provision of our daily needs isn't too much to ask from you. So you have an argument from natural justice, from scripture, from logic, common sense, and then he finally makes an argument from normal religious practice even. Verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. And so in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul explains the duty is clear. It's not ambiguous. Christians should give to their local churches to support the work of gospel ministry. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now I will simply say as an aside, and maybe some of you came from uh, this kind of a background, maybe, I have been accused of being a hireling. There are some groups, there are some denominations uh, whereby uh, the pastor 
uh, does not receive a salary. And what you need to know about some of those groups is fundamentally all of the offering actually goes to that individual. They pay the bills. They own the church and everything else. So, uh, but they, they will say, if you receive a paycheck for ministry, you are a hireling. Well, I think this speaks very clearly to that not being the case. And, and, and so I, I would simply say uh, that regular giving is critically important for all of us as followers of Jesus Christ. And I will simply say this, our staff, our pastors, we're not exempt from that. Okay, I'm to be a faithful steward of what God entrusts to me, just like any of you. So there's no clergy, laity separation in this regard. I am to support the work of the ministry here, just like anyone else. And so just know, and I would, I would say to you, FBCVA family, uh, that, 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 that what you're giving to is important. And not just because it directly impacts me and my family, certainly, but you are giving to the work of the gospel. We have a unified budget of just over $700,000. And so when you give toward that on an ongoing, regular basis, you are supporting missionaries who serve all around the world. You are supporting church planters who are planting churches through the North American Mission Board. You are, uh, you are supporting the work of the Grayson Association and, and a number of different things. You're supporting disaster relief, and you're supporting chaplaincy among our military personnel, and you're supporting chaplaincy among our first responders, and there are so many things that you are supporting when you give regularly to our unified budget. And I would also say this, if you are not engaged right now in that process, I would encourage you to be engaged one of the things that we annually vote upon as a church family is our budget. So there's a small team of people, a budget and finance team, who, who formulate a proposed budget. And they bring that to the church body uh, in an annual, in a, in a, it's done annually, typically in our November quarterly members meeting, and ask us as a church family uh, to, uh, to adopt that as our budget. That keeps us from having to come back to you with every little thing and say, hey, we need your permission to do this. We're going to operate within this budget. And so I hope that you see the, the impact of what your giving does. It reaches far beyond just Pastor Mike and his family and Jason Griff and other staff members, those who are, quote, on the payroll. It goes far beyond that, far beyond that. And so I hope that you are faithful in your giving. And so as he defends himself, he presses upon them a duty. But then you'll notice he does something extraordinary. In face of the entitled, antagonistic Corinthians, you see how Paul refuses to exercise his rights to the financial support that he insists ought ordinarily be a normal part of congregational life. And that's the last thing I want us to see here. Paul's decision. Paul's decision. He refuses to exercise his rights in this whole area himself. You see it in verse number 12. If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Or verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I'm not trying to guilt trip you here is what he's saying. Remember in chapter 8, Paul had been teaching us that love constrains liberty. That's how Christians ought to behave. That was the message back in chapter 8. And just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that it's love, the loving thing to do. It's the best thing to do in every situation, in every circumstance. And now we see what Paul, that Paul is practicing what he preaches. 
He doesn't call the Corinthians to live by a principle that he will not implement himself. He restricts his own freedom. Love constrains liberty in Paul's life and his ministry. He refuses, relinquishes his rights for their sake and the sake of the gospel. I think there's a vital lesson here for all of us, particularly those of us who are in any position of Christian leadership and ministry, whether you're You do it vocationally, or you do it uh, in a a volunteer sort of way. If we are to call other people to a life of sacrificial discipleship, then we need to remember that in God's economy, we are meant to be models, examples of what that sacrificial discipleship should look like. We are to practice what we preach, to demonstrate and to be, as it were, the visual aid, the illustration before the eyes of those whom we serve. And I would simply say this, I I welcome your accountability. That's not an easy thing to say. And I would hope if you feel compelled as a part of the First Baptist family to hold your pastor, any of us, for that matter, accountable, that you would do it in a loving way, that you would do it in a Christ-like way, But there needs to be a mutual accountability. Scripture makes it very clear that as church leaders, we are not to lord it over you. So I don't ever want to ask you to do something, teach you to do something that I myself am not willing to do myself. And so if you sense a a spirit of arrogance or pride in my life, then call me out on it. Maybe not publicly with a bullhorn, but call me out on it. Okay? Okay. I would hope that we have that that kind of mutual accountability. It's one of the things that we talk about with our deacon body. There needs to be a mutual accountability. And one of the reasons that we we see a lot of abuses in these kinds of areas in churches, and we all have crazy weird examples of this kind of stuff, you see it all the time, is because there's little, if any, accountability among the leadership of the church. That's why we believe very strongly in a plurality of leaders, a plurality of elders. No one is to be the dictator. Anything like that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard you know, these, this, this verse of Scripture kind of plucked out of context and applied to any kind of, of criticism, as Christ-like as it may have been. Touch not God's anointed. Touch not God's anointed. As if I, I'm above criticism or I'm above being held accountable or anything like that. That is unhealthy. It's incredibly unhealthy. And so we want to be consistent in living out, practicing what we preach. I don't want you to to hear one thing on Sunday and see something else Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, or whatever. And I would say this. Most of us have encountered someone. Maybe you've tried to share the gospel with someone, maybe a neighbor, a co-worker, something. And one of the reasons that they are not open to the gospel is because they've encountered some rank gospel hypocrisy. They know of someone who has claimed to be a Christ follower, but they are living something completely different than that. And it's that hypocrisy that is a turnoff to them. And so fundamentally what Paul is saying here is, I'm not exercising this right. I'm not using this right. Because I don't want anything that I do, anything, to stand in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't in any way want to be a stumbling block to you. So he's giving up this right. He's relinquishing his rights. And you say, well, where does that come from? How, how is it in an entitlement culture when everyone else is demanding their rights that Paul is able to give up his, to surrender his rights for the sake of others? Well, we're going to have to wait 
uh, for the next couple of weeks uh, to see the complete answer. Uh, but if you look again at verse number 12, you'll see the first part of Paul's answer. And I think that, that really is the foundation here. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I'd rather do anything. I'd give up, so I'd give up what, whatever I have to do so that I am not in any way an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. The great burden of his life is that the gospel might never be hindered. He doesn't want anyone claiming that Paul uh, is, is only in it for the cash. He wants the gospel to come to them freely because after all, that, that is the essence of the gospel. You know, scripture makes it clear, God's not going to be a debtor to anyone. He's just not. So no one can say, as good as you may think you are, as well behaved as you may think you are, no one can say, pretty much God owes me one. God doesn't owe us anything. The grace of God comes to us freely. Scripture says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. God doesn't owe us anything. So what is it that you are willing to do? What is it that you are willing to forego even for the sake of the gospel? The old song says, we'll let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. If that's what it takes to get the good news of the gospel into the hearts and minds and lives of people, I want the gospel to come with strings attached because the gospel is in its very nature free to us. So it makes it such good news. And so we see Paul. He's a man who's captured, he's captivated by the wonder of the gospel. A savior who is for a sinner like him and a sinner like me and a sinner like you. Such a gracious, loving God. And Paul has discovered that not only is this a message worth surrendering his life for, but that Jesus who is at the center of that message is his very great reward. There's no sacrifice that he can make that is too great to express his delight and his wonder at having been found by this Christ and having been called to him to present him to others. Yet the sad truth is, especially for us here in the American church, most of the time, if we're completely honest, our Christianity is a matter of convenience. It's a matter of convenience. Well, if I don't have anything else going on, it doesn't cost me too much. If I don't have to give up any of my vacation time. If I have to be inconvenienced, that's crossing the line. That's asking too much. We want a Christianity that's easy. And yet you see nothing of that in Scripture. True biblical discipleship will cost you something. And Paul says, I'm willing in this case, to even give up something that I could claim. And so my prayer for us is that God would so arrest our attention and so grip our hearts by the gospel, by the wonder and the glory of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ that we find ourselves gladly surrendering rights and privileges so that that gospel might come through us to others to the glory and the praise of God. That's my prayer. 
Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.